You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for signs and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds, and over the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I want you to imagine that you're a 20-something-year-old Israelite standing on the other side of the Red Sea. You've just witnessed God overthrow Pharaoh and his army, and you are unscathed. But more than unscathed, you are free now. You're no longer a slave. You no longer make bricks for the Egyptian empire. You no longer need to work sun up to sundown so that your family isn't harassed by the Egyptian guards. You and your entire community are free to embark on a new life together. You're free. But suddenly, a fear rises in your heart. What now? All I've known is the life of a slave. All I've ever been is what I produce. Now what will I do and who am I? The lack of solid answers is crippling. But now imagine that you're Moses. You're charged to lead this massive community of Hebrew slaves into formation as a royal nation, a nation of priests. How will you give them direction? How will you disarm those fears that they're all starting to feel? How will you answer those big questions that they're asking? Who am I? What will I do now? So here's what you do for Moses. You write their origin story because you don't know your destiny unless you know your origin. If you don't know your purpose and identity, you will not thrive in the new land as a new nation. So Moses dips his pen in the ink and he begins to write their story. And that is what we call the book of Genesis, Israel's biography. And coincidentally, if you read Genesis, their historical Biography, it answers also our most basic existential questions like, who am I? What am I here for? What's my purpose? Does my work matter to God? What's the point of marriage? What's the point of human community? All these big questions that we wrestle with, Genesis answers those questions. So we're titling this series, Genesis, the story of God's humanity. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean God is human. Uh, What I'm trying to say there, what we're trying to say there is that God has a distinguished humanity on earth that he's in a relationship with and that he's calling into his purposes and giving an identity to. 
So that's what Genesis is, the story of God's particular humanity. But today we're going to start in the beginning of it all, in Genesis chapter 1, and answer two huge questions. One, who is God? And two, what is he like? Who is God and what is he like? So we're going to explore those two questions within this creation account. We're going to formulate a very clear theology of God. So what I'm going to do to answer who is God is I'm going to exegete verses 1 and 2. We're going to walk through verses 1 and 2 rather slowly, picking it apart a little bit. But then to answer the rest of the questions, uh, what is he like? I'm not going to walk through every single verse of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. That would take, you know, maybe the whole entire day. We're not going to do that. But what, what I want to do today is stand back and look at Genesis chapter 1 and into Genesis chapter 2. I want to stand back and look at that unit as a whole and make some observations about its structure and shape. So, our first question, who is God? And what we're asking here is what's his, what's, his, what's his nature? What's his attributes? The first thing we're gonna see is that God is eternal. Verse one, in the beginning, God. Now in Torah school, if you're a little kid in Torah school, what the rabbi will do is he'll say, hey, you pick up and read Genesis, read, in the beginning, God. Stop right there. You pick up and read, in the beginning, God, stop right there. You pick up and read, in the beginning, God, stop right there. The rabbi will do that for all the students in the class. And he'll say, that's all you need to know. That tells you everything that you need to know. In the beginning, there was God. God and God alone isn't eternal. God and God alone is uncreated. In the beginning, when it occurs, God is already there. Systematic theologian Wayne Grudem, he says this, God's eternity means that he has a different kind of existence, an existence without the passage of time, a kind of existence that is difficult for us even to imagine. So God is eternal, no beginning, not created. This throws our minds through loop because we can't conceive of how a being might already exist when existence as we know it begins. When we read the creation account, our imaginations naturally want to rewind and get to, the, to God's beginning, but there is no beginning for God because he is eternal. He is and was and is to come. The fact that God has no beginning or end is seen in Psalm 90 verse 2 before the mountains were brought forth or ever had had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Similarly, Job 36, Elihu says of God, the number of his years are unsearchable. God's eternity is also suggested when he calls himself the Alpha and Omega. Isaiah says God inhabits eternity, meaning that's where God lives. He lives in the eternal dimension. So God is uncreated. He has always been. He is eternal, no beginning, and no end. Now, everybody, religious or not religious, agrees that there has to be a first cause to everything. Physics tells us that matter and time and space all originated at the same time, all originated together. And what you must do here, follower of Jesus or not, is decide which is more absurd to believe that God is the first cause or something else is the first cause. And so if you're a naturalist, 
you've offered three explanations. There are three explanations if you're a naturalist. First, matter and time and space must have generated spontaneously at the same time during the Big Bang. Meaning, matter and the space it fills and the initiation of time itself then would have had to come from two cosmic specks colliding. But where did those two cosmic specks come from? And so you're back at the initial problem here. What's the first cause? What originated the originating, originating material? It's intellectually dishonest to say that it's just turtles all the way down, like infinite regress. Because we all know it's only logical that there has to be a first cause. So one offering is the Big Bang. The second explanation offered is that this universe that we live in is the one universe that miraculously materialized out of the trillions of universes that could have been. This is called the multiverse theory. But the odds of that happening, of this universe just somehow combusting and working and operating with all of its complexities and in all its detail, the odds of that happening are just as good as me taking a disassembled watch, all of its parts disassembled, putting it in a shoebox, shaking it up a trillion times, and hoping that when I open the box, one of those instances, out comes a watch, assembled, put together, and working properly. We all know that would never happen, and we're talking about a cosmic universe that's much more delicate and fragile, yet working. And so that does not make sense. That's not going to work. And you still have to answer the, the question, where did those trillions of universes come from? And so the third explanation, the most recent explanation offered is that aliens, aliens were where everything came from. And so you have to decide what's more absurd, God, belief in God as the first cause, or the mathematical and logical non-starter presumption of the Big Bang multiverse theory or aliens. So, it seems to me that belief in a higher intelligent being beyond our understanding is the smaller leap of faith here. Philosophers call this being the greatest conceivable being, and it makes the most sense to call that being God. God is eternal, and God alone is eternal, and he alone is the first cause. So not one, who is God? He is, he is eternal. Secondly, verse one, we continue. God is powerful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you read the phrase heavens and the earth, that's called a merism. It just means two different things brought together in one phrase that communicate a more holistic idea. So when you see heavens and the earth, don't think sky and ground, sky and land. What you're supposed to think there when you see that phrase is everything. God created everything, all matter. Now, the word used here in verse one for created, you want to underline that word, is bara. Say bara. Well done. It means creation from nothing, ex nihilo. The other Hebrew word used for create in the rest of Genesis chapter one and into chapter two is the word asah. It's translated as make or made, which means to fashion or shape. And so in Genesis 1, God bara. He created from nothing. From here on out in Genesis, God then asas. He fashions and reshapes what he made out of nothing. So God creates something, and then out of that something, he makes everything. And what we find in this chapter is that God's method of creating is 
speaking. We hear, we see the refrain over and over, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so. God speaks everything into existence. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their host, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. So God spoke everything into existence out of nothing. So it makes sense why physicists think that matter and space and time is spontaneously generated in a moment. It's because God spoke matter and space into being, thus initiating existence itself. Physicists everywhere now rightfully agree that something powerful had to occur at the universe's origin. They just miss who gets the credit. God gets the credit. And look, we're talking about God's power. How, how impressive his power is. No matter how far science can take us, there is one thing that mankind and machines will never be able to do, and that is to generate matter and space and time all at once. We've not been able to recreate the Big Bang. We've tried, and it hasn't happened. And that's because mankind can only assaw. We can refashion. We can reshape. We can adjust. But we cannot barah create out of nothing. That is only God's prerogative. And he does so by commanding it into being. God's eternal and God is powerful. That's pretty cool. Pretty impressive. But here's the thing. This would be really terrible news if God was a tyrant. Imagine being at the mercy of a whimsical God who has all power, who's not limited and constrained by time, but who operates outside of it. If that God was a tyrant, we would tremble before that God, like the other Mesopotamian gods of this time, who are just rash and mean and cruel and immoral. If God was like that, then this is not good news. God is eternal and God is powerful. That's who he is. But now we need to know what is he like? Elohim, God, is different. What's he like? What's his character? One, first, God is creative. Verse two, he is creative. The earth was without form and void, meaning it's matter that's inhabiting space, but it's, it's not crafted yet. It's not shaped like, a pot, like pottery. It's without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what you need to imagine there is matter without the laws of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics, without friction, without magnetism. It's matter in chaos, matter not governed and without order. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So imagine the universe that God has created out of nothing as a giant mass of chaotic raw material that needs ordering and fashioning. And God's creativity is underscored in that second sentence there. Read with me again. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we'll come back to the spirit of God in a minute. But the description of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, that should get into your imagination right now. The word for hovering can also be translated as fluttering, like a dove, which is why the Spirit is captured as a dove when, at Jesus' baptism. This is why, uh, excuse me, the word for hovering can also be translated as moving gently, 
So this imagery shows us that God, he's not in a rush, that he's hovering over this raw material that's in chaos and without order, pondering what he might do next, preparing to proceed in creative action. And as God does move forward in creative action, he skillfully sculpts a beautiful world, doesn't he? a beautiful world that we often take for granted. But if you get your eyes off your phone or get out of your house and live a little, you will see that this world is anything but boring. The most fascinating place that I've been is Iceland. Rebecca, before we started having kids, before we had Harper, we went on a baby moon. We traveled for a few weeks before our life was over as we knew it. And, uh, and so the first place we went to was Iceland. We caught a red eye, got there at 5 a.m., landed in Iceland at 5 a.m., and rented our car and just drove through the Icelandic countryside. And it was breathtaking. I saw rock structures and mountains and landscapes that I never knew existed. It was like I was literally in an alternative reality, like a, a different planet. And I thought to myself, this, is, this exists? This is here? God did this. This came from his imagination. This came from his creativity. Landscapes and horizons that take our breath away. That was God's idea. He's hovering over the waters, pondering what he might do next, speaks into existence what takes our breath away. And and think about this. All the complexities involved in sustaining this universe were developed and programmed by him. Like the earth is on a 23 degree tilt, rotating at the perfect speed, at the proper distance from the sun, so that we don't fall apart, combust, be set on fire, or freeze to death. It's fragile and delicate, yet it works because God has programmed his genius into the very fabric of the universe. Think about creator God, like a painter with a blank canvas before him, looking over his brushes and paint colors. Or a, think about the creator God, like a conductor before a symphony, prepared to draw out the best of each ensemble so that symphonic harmony begins to swell into a masterpiece. God stands before his creation that is loaded with potential as a master craftsman. Psalm 102, 25 and 26. Of old, you, God, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Notice the imagery of handiwork, like God is a sculptor or a potter. Verse 26, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but they will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. The Psalter uses the imagery of fabric to say that the universe will one day pass away. But the imagery also shows us that God is like a seamster, like a fashion designer. So the point, so at this point in the narrative, you and I should be on the edge of our seats asking ourselves, What does God have up his sleeve as he is hovering over the face of the deep, over the chaotic mess of matter? What is he about to do? It's like a theater performance. When the act is about to start, the lights dim, the music begins, 
the audience hushes and waits for the curtain to open and for creativity and wonder to ensue. God is creative. He's an artist. He's a craftsman. He's an engineer. He's a decorator. He is not boring. And now we see that he creates from a place of happiness. God is a happy God, not a curmudgeon God, not an angry God. He is a happy God because God is triune. He's a trinity. So if you look at verses one, two, and three, you see a few different things. One, God created. God is creator. He's a creator. Second, we see that the spirit of God is hovering, right? God is spirit. And then it says in verse 3 that God spoke. God is word. Creator, spirit, word. All together in verses 1, 2, and 3. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Even here at the very beginning of the story. And, and we know that this is the doctrine of the Trinity because the New Testament makes it clear. Like the New Testament is, is the door that creaks open so that it sheds light into the dark and cryptic places of the Old Testament. And so here we have Father, Son, and Spirit collaborating together in the act of creation. The Greeks in the early church called this perichoresis. Perichoresis, choreography. You hear the word choreography? It's like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit were orbiting around one another in this perfect, happy dance, giving and taking happily, delighting in the other and celebrating the other. And out of the overflow of that profound love and joy that God has in himself, his three-person self, he creates. It overflows, overflows in profound, creative energy. You could say it's like the father and son. We're bursting at the seams with love for each other and their conversation or song together erupted and went forward as the waves of the spirit rushing over the waters. What the doctrine of the Trinity tells us is that God is in community with himself and therefore, this is crucial that you gotta understand this. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is essential because it means that God has no deficiency. God has no need. He has no lack. He did not create out of boredom. He was not lonely. He didn't need a friend. He didn't need to be worshiped. He had everything he needed already in his own existence, in his own triune self. God creates not out of boredom, but out of ecstasy. So just like a man and a woman, when they have more than enough love to give, become one and create. So God, who has more than enough love to give, is three in one and creates. And procreation, it's fun, it's moving, it's joyful, it's pleasing. And so the triune God's act of creation is just the same. Fun and moving and joyful and pleasing. So you should picture God erupting in creative energy from the overflow of profound Trinitarian happiness. Who here, as you were growing up in church, this is like the first thing that you heard about, the creation story, right? Who here, that, that's like the first thing you learn, probably all of us. No one's raising, very not interactive today. Raise your hands, okay? Only works with, the sermon's only gonna work if you raise your hands. This is what we all learned, the creation story. God created the world. And we, because it's so familiar, we've taken it for granted. We just gloss over it so quickly. We forget to appreciate how revolutionary this story is. Because Moses' account of creation 
it would have stood out like a sore thumb against all the alternative creation accounts of his day. The other Mesopotamian gods were not like this. This was not their story. The Hebrew people's story, it's unique to them. It's different. So in the Babylonian story, which is written around the same time, uh, one author accounts this. This is what he says. Primeval Absu was the progenitor and Matrix Tiamat was she who bore them all. So she's the great God. From other gods, Marduk is eventually born. There's conflict in the pantheon and Marduk does battle with Tiamat, whom he kills and having triumphed over the demonic horde, he crushed her skull. This done, he split her in two. Half of her he set up and made as a cover heaven. The other half he makes the earth. Then he builds Babylon as the abode of his pleasure and makes humans from the blood of the vanquished God. In the Egyptian text, the Egyptian stories, are written around the same time that Moses is writing this. The god Shu is the atmosphere. He stands on Geb, the earth, another god. With arp-raised arms, he holds up Newt, the sky. And one of these texts reads that I am the god of Shu. Now listen here. The self-evolving god. It is in the body of the self-evolving god that I have evolved. And so your question right now might be, how does this one god self-evolve? And I, <laughs> I'm too embarrassed to read the rest of the story because it just devolves into complete degenerate immorality. And then later on, the Greek mythologies are this. In short, the gods manipulate one another, sleep with one another. They have offspring that becomes parts of the world, all without, quote, the sweet union of love. Moses is writing the the true account of creation, but it's also at the same time subversive to all the other stories that the people of God have heard. It's attractive, it's jolting all at once because this God, unlike all the other parodies, is a happy God. He's happy. He's not violent. He's not angry. He's not manipulative. He's not cruel. He's not a tyrant. This God is happy. There's no deficiency in him. And that can only be said about a God who is not lonely or bored. That can only be said about the God who is a triune God. God is happy. He's, an ha- he's a happy artist. And now what we'll see is he creates that which is beautiful, true, and good. He creates that which is beautiful, true, and good, or in summary, that which is perfect because it's a reflection of him. He is beautiful, true, and good, and he is perfect. And so again, I, I'm, not, I'm not exegeting the entire passage, but Doug read it for you. You know the story. There's this cadence in the six days of creation. Here's the cadence. And God said, let there be. And it was so. And God called. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. There's this cadence over and over throughout Genesis chapter one. When I first uh, heard the Trans-Siberian Orchestra song, uh, Carol the Bells, Another raising hand. Anyone else heard that one? Know that one? Okay, thank you. When I first heard that song, I like played it on repeat forever because here's an orchestra with electric guitars. 
And so just imagine 16-year-old Joey driving around rural Ohio at Christmas time, just blasting Carol the Bells, thinking that I was so cool. This is so cool. That's about as classy as I get electric guitars, okay? But the reason why I love that song is because it's complex and simple and ordered and rich all at once. That's what what makes a song satisfying. Something that has a good shape to it, a coherence throughout it. And that's why I don't like country music. (laughs) I had to do it. I had to say it. I could go on on other artists. I'm not going to. (laughs) Taylor Swift. (laughs) Unplanned. The The symphony of creation is like a divine song that has no incoherence or awkward pauses or flat notes. The symphony of creation, it's beautiful. There's order and symmetry to it. It's perfect. It's beautiful, good, and true. So let's, let's talk about beauty, truth, and goodness, okay? In our current culture, we think of beauty very superficially. We think of it in terms of what's erotic or sensual or flashy, but historically, beauty is about order and balance, And it's the same with truth and goodness. Truth and goodness, they're not relative or subjective. They're absolute. But even still, we tend to think of them as facts, as bullet points, as statements. But historically, truth and goodness, you knew what was true and what was good when it was verified by what it would produce. Or in other words, you knew what was true and good based off that thing reaching its intended purpose. So truth and goodness, they have an ultimate purpose, just like beauty. And if something does not fulfill that purpose, it's not beautiful, good, or true. Again, think about a watch. What is a beautiful, true, and good watch? It's not just a watch that simply looks nice. It's a watch that works, that has all parts working together in perfect synchrony to fulfill its intended purpose, which is to reliably tell you the time. So if a watch works perfectly so that it fulfills its purpose, it is a beautiful and good and true watch. And creation, the creation that God has made, fulfills its purpose. It goes off without a hitch. It works perfectly because it is beautiful, good, and true. And it is a reflection of God himself who is beautiful, good, and true. Again, a story from the baby moon. Before Harper was born, we went to Europe. We went to Iceland, then we went to Florence, Italy. And I was not really into art before that, but we were in Florence, so we had to go check out Michelangelo's uh, famous statue of David. And we walked in, and I walk up to this massive statue, and it was the most astonishing thing. Imagine taking a marble slab that weighs at least a ton and using just a chisel and a hammer to create something so lifelike and symmetrical and balanced. It's, um, it's amazing what Michel- Michelangelo did. Michelangelo created something that is good and beautiful and true. No disproportions, no errors. It's totally pleasing to the eye, not just because David is jacked, but because there's order and symmetry. It shows us just how impressive Michelangelo is in his scale and genius. And listen, there was a point 
when Michelangelo put the chisel down and looked at his work and said, if I make one more hammer on the chisel, I'll ruin it. It's perfect the way it is. It's done, it is finished. Just like when God stood back on the sixth day, looked at the whole of what he had done and said, it is very good. No more to be done. It's beautiful, good, and true. It's perfect, just like God is beautiful, true, and good because he is perfect. The last thing we observe about God, his character through this account, is that he is kind. He is kind. Meaning, the eternally powerful God uses his capacities to bless us. So, to appreciate this characteristic of God, we need, we need to examine the seven days of creation as a whole, and then we need to examine the seventh day itself. So that's what I want to do right now. Examine the whole shape of the unit, all seven days, and then I want to examine the seventh day. So first, let's talk of the seven days. Are they literal? There are some who believe they are literal, sequential, 24-hour days, or are they metaphor? Are they metaphor? There are some who believe that each day could be an undefined amount of time that allows for the evolutionary process to take place. This is called theistic evolution. There are others that simply think each day is more than 24 hours because the science tells us that the earth is old, not young. This is called the day-age theory. They cite 2 Peter 3, verse 8, which says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, although I agree that the earth is old, not young, the problem with all of these propositions is they are picking up Genesis and reading it with the wrong premise. This is a poem, not a lab report. And Moses did not write this to answer our 21st century scientific inquiries. He wrote it to a Hebrew people desperate to know who their God is and what he is like and how he feels about them and what he intends for them. So we need to read this not as a lab report, but as, but as poetic literature. Historical narrative, that begins in chapter two. That's where we really get on the ground play-by-play -play action. But here in Genesis one, this is the cosmic poetic perspective of creation. And when you read Genesis as such, you will find that Genesis one is not telling us the exact play-by-play -play of creation, but instead, it's filling our imagination with a true but poetic retelling of the creation event that conveys who God is and how he feels towards us. So no, I don't think this is literally 24-hour sequential days, and I don't think this is the evolutionary process, and I don't know how long each day is because Moses is not out to answer that question. And just to be clear, the Bible is infallible. It's without error. That's not in question. And the Bible isn't contrary to or outdated by science. In fact, it's the opposite. But you need to read the Bible according to its literary genre, not a modern lens that's colored by questions and concerns that Moses never even considered. So the meaning of Genesis 1 is discerned, or excuse me, is not discerned by reading straight through it and taking it literally. 
its true meaning and interpretation is discerned by standing back and analyzing the literary structure and shape of Genesis 1. We in the modern times think that the message is in the linear words themselves, and that's oftentimes true. But if you're a Hebrew reader, you understand that oftentimes there's a more, uh, a greater message embedded within the actual shape and structure of the literary unit. And so when you stand back and look at the shape and structure, you'll see that God, you can go and put the chart up, Andrew, if you have the chart. I made this for you guys. You'll see that after God creates everything in verse one, he begins to separate on days one, two, and three. He separates on day one, two, and three. First, he separated light from dark, which is day and night. Then day two, he separated waters, which is the clouds in the sky and the bodies of water below. The third day, he separated the water on the earth from the vegetation and land on the earth. And this is when the earth is called earth. That's what he does does the first three days. He separates. He fashions, if you will. Then on days four, five, and six, he fills what he has separated On day four, he fills day and night with sun, moon, and stars. On day five, he fills water and sky with fish and birds. On day six, he fills the earth he created, emphasis on the land here, with creatures and humans. So if you've studied this before, this is called the framework theory, meaning days one through six have a correspondence with one another. That's the way Moses wrote it intentionally for us to see a greater purpose within the story of creation. And so this interpretation studies the intentionality of the structure, not just the sequence of days. So the question you have is, what does this have to do with God's kindness? We're trying to prove that God is kind. This tells us God is kind. How so? Because... When we, when we read the creation account this way, we see the intent behind God's creativity. His intent is to make a home for creatures and especially for mankind to inhabit. The structure of Genesis 1 shows us that God is creating an enjoyable home for humanity. All of God's creative energy involved in architecting a habitable domain and then filling that domain with sun, moon, stars, creatures so that us, last of all, on day six, might enjoy what he has made. It's as if everything before us, humanity, was just preparation for our arrival. We are the object of this great gift of all of God's creative energy, preparing a world for our sake, God, as he's creating and speaking the world into existence, he thinks to himself, they're going to love this. They're going to love this. Oh, the chocolate, they're going to love this. Puppies, they're going to love this. And that's why this reveals God's kindness. He uses his creative power to build a world of wonder for us. So God's kind. But you'll also notice that we stopped at day seven. We haven't gotten to day seven yet. We haven't touched it. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, read it with me. This is the last day of creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. 
He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He consecrated it because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is what's known as the Sabbath day. It becomes a literal fixture in the Jewish custom throughout time. Why do you think an all-powerful and eternal God would rest? Is he exhausted and tired? Definitely not. So why would he rest and stop? It's because he is embedding in the fabric of reality the answer to our deepest question, what is my purpose? My purpose is to enjoy God and worship him. You remember that the first six days of creation correspond to one another, day one to day three, day two to day four, day three to day six. Well, here the seventh day has no corresponding day to it. It's as if all of the structure of Genesis one shows us that there's a pinnacle day, a day that stands alone by itself, the ultimate day, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. So humanity may be the crown jewel of creation, but Sabbath rest with God is the intended destination. In other words, even though we have a world made just for us to enjoy, we have a seventh day, the very rest of God that we were made for. So God resting and inviting us into that rest means that more than anything His intent in creating is to build a world where we can lift our gaze heavenward and find where our worth comes from, what defines us, why I'm here, what my destiny is, which is to be loved by God, enjoy him and worship him and glorify him in doing so. And notice again that in in chapter two, verse three, go there with me again. It says that, Uh, you'll notice that there is no evening and morning. All the other six days, evening and morning, evening and morning, but not the seventh day. It doesn't say it, which gives us the impression that the seventh day continues on indefinitely. There is no end to the seventh day. And we know that from Hebrews chapter four, that the reason this is the case is because Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath rest. Jesus is the rest of God for us. There is an indefinite invitation into salvation, rest in Jesus. He gives us rest from performance, from striving, from sin, from guilt. This rest is available now and it will one day be our world forever and eternity. Now, pause for a moment. Pause, okay? Remember who the original audience is. Remember the beginning. This nation has just seen Pharaoh overthrown. They're entering into a new land. They have no idea who they're going to become. All they've ever known is that they've worked to live. They are what they produce. They've worked to survive. They've been slaves. They have no identity. Nonstop, 24-7, proving of themselves to Egypt so Egypt might keep them around and not harass them. And now they're discovering their origin story. And they find out that the world was made for them. They were not made for the world. The world was made for them. They find out that they're not created to work for anyone, but to rest with God. They find out that they are more than what they produce. They're not a random tribe of people. They're defined by how much God loves them and treasures them and cares for them. 
So the literary shape of the entire unit has a message in itself and shows us that God is kind, preparing a world for us and consecrating a day for us and him. So what's God like? He's eternal and powerful and thankfully all at the same time, he's creative and happy and good, beautiful and true and kind. Now, we're closing up here. You may feel like none of this is true. This may not resonate with you at all because you may feel like your life is out of control. So how is God eternal and powerful? You may think that Christianity sounds boring and lifeless. So how can God be creative and happy and good and beautiful and true and kind? That doesn't hit you in the heart. It doesn't make sense to you. There's a reason why that dissonance is taking place in each and every one of us at any given time. It's because Genesis 3 is coming. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the destiny, the purpose of our creation we're out of sync with it because we're out of sync with God. We're separated from him. Now, Moses, he wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote the first five books. He wrote the entire Torah. And so when you come to the story of the 10 plagues in Egypt, they're written by Moses. And you should keep in mind that he wrote also the creation account. And so you read those 10 punishments, the 10 plagues. You might think they're random. You might think they're practical jokes. But if you look closer, you'll see a pattern. God turns the Nile to blood, which destroys the natural ecosystem of the Nile. Out of the Nile come frogs. From the frogs come gnats. The gnats then produce disease. And so what does that have to do with sin? Moses wants us to see that when we sin, it's as if we're undergoing decreation. We're unraveling. And that's exactly what the experience of sin is. It undoes us. Life comes apart and nothing makes sense. So how does God undo decreation? How is God going to reconcile us and bring us back to our original destiny? Well, in the language of Genesis 1, we, you and I, need to become new creations. But for God to remain just, someone else has to be decreated for us in our place so that we can be recreated. Recall that God's triune, Elohim, God's creator, spirit, and word, and in the fullness of time, the word becomes flesh. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. The light Verse five, shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Meaning Jesus, he re-enters into the darkened, chaotic world of sin and then he begins to reshape it just like the father does at the beginning of time. He heals diseases. He opens the eyes of the blind. He makes the lame walk. He walks on water. He forgives adulterers and thieves and shameful people and transform them. And more than that, he raises people from the dead. So basically, wherever sin left darkness, Jesus said, let there be light. Jesus shows us his eternal power over creation as a creative and happy and good and beautiful and true and kind God-man. But that was all just a lead up to his greatest final act of recreation. Jesus recreates us who have been decreated by sin 
by plunging himself into the darkness of death, undergoing decreation himself on the cross. He was forsaken by God instead of being seen by God. The claim, it was good, it was good, it was very good, which is rightfully God the Son's, now becomes ours because he was rejected and forsaken by the Father so we might be accepted because of Jesus' righteousness given to us. And now... We can be recreated by the Spirit day by day and hope that we will be recreated from dust on the ultimate day. The gospel is the great mystery that Jesus, the architect of creation, the very word himself, loved us enough to enter into darkness so we could have the light of life and one day be recreated in the resurrection and join him in a new creation. Genesis, it's the story of God's humanity. Who are his people? What are they destined for and what are they like? We're going to study who we are. We're going to study things that matter. But we start with an understanding of who God is and how he feels about us. Because the most important question, a great component of your identity and my identity is this question. Whose are we? Whose are you? Who do you belong to and who loves you? You belong to God. He is who loves you. He is who you were made for. And that will make sense of everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your grace, undergoing decreation so we could be built back up and made new. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you for your creativity for your love, for your genius, for giving us this world to inhabit as a gift and for giving us entrance and invitation to you in your presence. God, you are eternal and powerful and you are creative and kind and good and beautiful and true and perfect. We praise you in your name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.